226, Chapter 4 of Dracula. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 226, Put the Kindle Back. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knit Circus, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more by visiting www.knitcircus.com. Also, Tea Times Creations. You can find vintage china tea stands, fittings, and more. Visit teatimescreations at etsy.com or follow the link in the show notes. And Cool for Cats, the new novel by Andrew C. Ordover. You can get it at amazon.com or find out more from the link in the show notes. Greetings and salutations, listeners. Hello. I am so excited this week. I am leaving for Rhinebeck in a couple of days and I'm podcasting a little bit early, but that works out well for you. And why, you might ask, is this episode called Put the Kindle Back? It is because this chapter cannot help but make me think of young Frankenstein and the castle, because Jonathan is going to have a chance to see a wee bit more. And (laughs) there's just something about castles that for the rest of my life will make me think of young Frankenstein. So, So you just have to put up with me. There it is. But before we get to Dracula, I do have some little tidbits for you. One thing I wanted to tell you before I forget is right now there is a Craftlet app for droids, iPods, and iTouches. They have stopped talking about making an app for Blackberries. I do not know if that's because it's so close to done that they're not talking about it anymore, or if it is just that they have completely given up. I have no idea, and I'm not getting answers back on that because I imagine it is not as important as people having actual problems with their apps. So I have no news on that, but I do have news on the app itself. I am going to stop. They've changed the app and actually made it more efficient, and I am going to stop duplicating show notes as PDFs because it is an enormous waste of time. All of the links that I link to in the show notes that go up on the website automatically become live links with the episode on the app. So if, for example, I say something like, there's a picture of a mattock and a liter wagon on the show notes, you will be able to check out the link without having to slog through reading any show notes. Uh, if you if you use that app. I continue to make wallpapers for you because it's kind of fun and wallpaper is fun. And the other thing I'm going to start doing as, you know, a knitting type person is I'm going to start putting up a pattern a month on the iPhone app. Once it's been on the app for a week, I will put that pattern up on Ravelry. These will be free patterns. They are just, they are what they are. And there's that. If you have a pattern you would like to put on the iPhone app, please contact me. I know some of you have, and, um, and that's worked really well. And then, and then you can move it from the podcast to Ravelry, and people will know who you are. Well, that's all very nifty. And one of the other things that is happening is with just the books, the parallel podcast to Craftlet, the one that skips over all of what I'm doing right now, and just does the book talk, and the book chapters, that is now in real time. So Pride and Prejudice is up and locked in and sitting there waiting for you to send people to it who aren't crafty. And Dracula is now in real time with Craftlet. So today we have episode 226 of Craftlet. And today we will also have episode 226 of Just the Books. Now, you may find that odd because there's going to be a missing 200 
episodes in between Pride and Prejudice and Dracula. Those I'm going to fill in as we go but I'm actually uploading them by their original craft-lit date, so they are going in order, which is kind of nifty. At some point, I will have them build a Just the Books app as well, but that has not happened yet. It will. It's just not going to happen now. So that is the update on the iPhone, iTouch, Android app. It is, in fact, the way that I listen to the show when I'm out and about and I'm double-checking things, and... I do find it to be much easier. And uh, anyone who isn't sure, anyone who has a podcast and isn't sure, I think it's worth it, actually, honestly, really. And, you know, if you don't have an iPod, iTouch, or Droid at this point, have no fear because they continue to make innovations and who knows what's coming next. You know, it's one of those who knows who will be the next Steve Jobs. Wasn't that sad? Oh my god, that was sad. I have been using Macs since they threw a hammer through a busy screen, and it's uh, it's very sad for me to have watched Steve Jobs go. At the same time, uh, my husband's aunt had pancreatic cancer, and she had three months between diagnosis and passing. So Steve Jobs, evidently money can do a lot for your health. And, you know, he's no dummy. He's, he's a, he was a smart man. And evidently had a, a lovely family. And uh, I'm glad he got some, some time with them before he went. So that was sad. Less sad is the incentive for the month of October. This is probably the most expensive incentive we have ever had on the show. In fact, it is. It just is. Uh, were you to buy one of these for yourselves, uh, you would be shelling out some vintage money <laughs> because Marcelli Botticelli's work is gorgeous and glorious and she picks lovely vintage china to make her tea times creations stands from if you have not followed the link from the show notes to go and look at what she does over at her etsy store i highly recommend that you do um, for one thing it's you know good christmas presents really, really pretty stuff. And for another thing, if you're feeling crafty and vintagey yourself, she also has the the findings and, and all of the drill bits and, and everything you would need to make these yourself, which, you know, as a craft-lit person, I kind of think that just demonstrates the genius and the goodness of our people. You know, because craft-lit people are better. You are. You just need to pat yourselves on the back because you are. And I think this is proof of it because instead of Marcelli sitting there on this information and hiding it from everyone and being the only person who's capable of making these things, she's sharing that knowledge and information. And I love that. And another person's art that I wanted to share with you, Aaron Ziegler. Now, lest you think he is just a pretty face from Chop Bard, you need to disabuse yourself of that notion because he is also a lovely graphic artist, as is Shannon, his his producer, her stuff. God, when we were in New York, I got to see some of her art, and she's stunningly good. Maybe maybe at some point you'll, you'll see more and more. I think she did the cover for the Devouring Shakespeare book that uh, Aaron Ziegler wrote. I highly recommend that book, especially if you're a teacher. But Aaron Ziegler, while he was listening to Craft Lit created something gorgeous for us. And, you know, I've talked about wallpaper and how much fun wallpaper is. Well, Aaron has given me the freedom to offer this to you, and it fits a screen size, so it makes a lovely piece of computer wallpaper. And, and I, I have a full confession, full disclosure here. I have actually had this in my hands for over a month now, and I was, I was actually hoarding it. I wasn't going to share it with anyone because it's just, it is such a beautiful piece of art. Computer-generated Dracula text, gorgeous graveyard scene with a little craft-lit graveyard, um, gravestone in it, which I love. It is, it's a lovely piece of work. It looks like a shadow box. It looks like a photograph of a shadow box. It is just a genius piece of art. And um, the man's just talented. So, you know, lest you think that you have to be a knitter 
while you sit and listen to Craftlet. I now have proof positive that I am putting on the show notes for you to share in that you can just be crafty while you listen. Lord knows when I listen to podcasts, I'm always doing something, whether it is cooking or cleaning or drawing or designing. There's always something else happening. And I think, I think that's good. I think that keeps us, you know, it's like doing Sudoku. It keeps your brain alive. <laughs> and that, that evidently is a good thing for all of us. Pattern submissions for volume two of What Would Madame Defarge Knit. If you are interested in submitting a pattern, you still have time. We had put uh, October 31st as the deadline for submissions. Um, you know, it's me. It's going to be a little squishy. At some point, I will have to make a cutoff because the design board is going to make actual firm decisions. Um, but until then, I'm going to keep funneling the ideas that I get to them. So even if you have something that's kind of in a gestational point, you know, where you're really just thinking about it, but you're not sure, you know, email me. I've gone back and forth with people um, for the last couple of months about a design ideas where I'll go back and say, ooh, you know, we've already got a lot of this. Have you thought about taking it this direction? Or ooh, what if you did it in this kind of yarn? So it's, you know, it's a collaborative process. Everything is better when you have somebody to bounce your ideas off of and get some feedback. And then you go do your thing. You make it yours. But, um, but don't hesitate. If you have an idea, go ahead and, and send it in. Because, you know, there are a lot of really talented people out there who aren't famous. And this is an excellent opportunity for you, fabulous people, to take advantage of. And just as last week when I was buried under a finished rock, this week I've just been busy, 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 plus the kids were home. So I have not been good about getting back to people on emails. Do not think that I have lost them. I have a new system and it's working very well. And I will... Uh, maybe even on the train on the way up to Rhinebeck, if they have good wireless, I will finally have time to email back everyone. And, uh, you know, anything that takes actual thought <laughs> or, or needs me to make a decision, those are the things I'm putting on hold for now. So don't hesitate to write. Just know that you might not hear from me until I get back from Rhinebeck. Uh, Becky did send in, <laughs> I loved this, a very funny cuckoo clock. It is called a Yuku clock, E-W-E, uh-huh, meh, it is adorable, and you, you must go, go look at this, it's, it's well worth taking a look at. And if you are going to be in Rhinebeck this coming weekend, please stop by the Cooperative Press booth, the number has changed, they, they moved the booth, it is now Building C, Stall 37. Um, we'll all, all be there. And if you come and meet me on Saturday or Sunday at 1130, then we can all, you know, hug and say hi and cackle and pat ourselves on the back for being such fabulous people. And then we'll all walk over to the Ravelry party. I will not stay long because I'll get back to the booth so that other people can go to the Ravelry party as well from the Cooperative Press booth. But, um, but this seemed to be the best way to organize the Craftlet crew. And, um, and so that's where I'll be. Uh, I know Dawn, who has designed the Wolf Slayer, the Flying Monkey Minions, the, um, the little slippers, the, the not-so-ruby slippers. She is at Jenny the Potter's booth. I think Amy Detchen, who unfortunately we didn't get a chance to travel with this week, but who is nonetheless fabulous. I think she's going to be there. And then Chris from Briar Rose is going to be there. She's off in a tent. Oh, I can't remember her number. Well, I have it on a sign at the Cooperative Press booth because Briar Rose fibers are well represented in the What Would Madame Defarge Knit book. The Hunter's Cthulhu Socks, Cthulhu Weights, uh, Brenda Dane's Lysistrata's Chiton, uh, the Wolf Slayer Hood, and the Jekyll and Hyde hooded sweater. Those are all made from gorgeous Briar Rose yarn. And as I said before, if you can come, please introduce yourself as a listener. Some people just come up and smile and they're very friendly, but they don't actually let me know that they're a listener. And I, as I've told you, I'm really lousy with self-promotion. I don't say, hi, do you listen to the podcast? Which I probably should. I'm sure I should, but I get shy too, which I know is ridiculous, right? Because I'm 
But you have to remember, I'm sitting here talking to a computer alone in a room. <laughs> I am just as shy as the next person. I just talk more. So please, please, please introduce yourself. And if you and I have corresponded, please remind me of both your name, your email address even, or the topic that we corresponded about, because I get a lot of email. And I, I do remember them, but you know, I remember funky little bits and pieces. And don't forget, if you buy or bring your copy of Defarge, when I sign it for you, I will also give you a WWMDFK bracelet. Uh-huh. Ooh. And speaking of interesting emails, Hunter Hammerson, who designed the Cthulhu Weight Socks and who did Silk Road Socks book and who has a new book coming out not too far from now, she emailed me because she knows many, many, many important factoids. And one of the things she emailed me about was that she couldn't find in her surgery books, her history books, anything about women having ribs removed uh, around the turn of the century when those birdcage corsets, the metal corsets, were created. And so we were kind of going around and around this because I know I had a professor tell me back when I was doing a Victorian literature class that this happened. Well, I'm... I'm not finding any proof of it either. So it must have been an apocryphal story. Really good one, but apocryphal. And, um, and I did want to make sure you knew that. As Hunter and I spoke, we figured that probably what was happening was if you, you know, ribs are flexible, they have to be flexible. If you put someone in a corset, especially if you start them when they're youngish, and you keep that corset tight, of course their body is going to change shape and it will look as though ribs are missing. Um, It'll also do damage. It's like foot binding. You know, it's not, it's not a happy thing, but, um, but it, is, it is a thing nonetheless. So, ixnay on the rib surgery, just so you know. Hunter is definitely the kind of person who I want on my Trivial Pursuit team. That would be a good idea. And I got another interesting email about Dracula. <laughs> Dracula. So, Dracula, I, uh, I, had <laughs> I had made my crack about sparkly vampires in the previous episode, and here is the email that I got back. So, one of our listeners, Margaret, who is a very interesting person, Margaret said she wanted me to let you know that there is actually a history of, you won't believe this, sparkly vampires in folklore. They were, they were called obours. I am not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's O-B-O-U-R-S. And uh, Stanislaus St. Clair and Charles Brophy described them in their book, 12 Years Study of the Eastern Question in Bulgaria. They were described as mostly harmless, which cracks me up because all I think of is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mostly harmless. Fledgling vampires, they're mostly harmless fledgling vampires in an aeriform shape, A-E-R-I, aeriform shape, who lit up the streets with their sparkles. Now, this is very interesting because today's chapter, well, I don't know, I don't know that I could say sparkly vampires. In fact, I won't. I will not say sparkly vampires. I will, however, say that the aeriform shape may be something to keep your ears open for. Um, and evidently, these obors lit up the streets with their sparkles. It's very interesting. And Margaret goes on to say, this little factoid is from the book I co-authored called Vampire Werewolf Zombies, Compendium Monstrum. And uh, this book is out there and available. So if you are interested in vampires, werewolves, zombies, please take a look at the Compendium Monstrum. I will put a link to the book from the show notes so that if you are so inclined, you would be able to hunt it down. And that's um, Margaret Rubiano. She's also sneaky beaky on, on Ravelry. And uh, isn't it amazing the cool stuff Craftlet listeners have done? I love you guys. There's nothing you haven't taken on and accomplished. And it just makes me marvel. So Dracula. Now we're into Dracula for real. Dracula this week. Well, when last we left our intrepid Jonathan Harker, you may recall he was not doing so well. He'd been caught out of his room by the Count, and he had almost become dinner 
for some, you know, three hot babes. And that's kind of a problem because now, now he knows. Now he knows too much. And that is not going to do him a bit of good, is it? Really, honestly. Now, a, a couple of, uh, a couple of words that I want to make sure you have in your back pocket. Uh, a leader wagon, L-E-I-T-E-R. I have a picture on the show notes and a link to an interesting website I'll tell you about in a sec. Uh, a leader wagon, it, it's an interesting kind of wagon. It's made out of very long pieces of wood. And he's already talked about this before. It's being driven by the Slovaks. And he talks about the long vertebra of the wagon. And it's because they're like long pieces of wood or long slats. And what that means in very practical terms is the if the road is uneven and you have a very rigid wagon structure, then you run the risk of bending not I mean you run the risk of breaking instead of bending in a in any situation obviously it's better to bend than to break and this wagon evidently was designed to be able to you know have one wheel up higher than the other or you know having the front axle at a right left angle and the back axle at the left right angle whatever the ground required of you this kind of wagon was more capable of uh, following that uneven terrain but obviously if you are going to have a large wagon going over uneven terrain, you are going to need a lot more horsepower. And, and so you will, you will hear that in the book. The other term I wanted to make sure you were comfortable with is just kind of archaic. It's a mattock, M-A-T-T-O-C-K, mattock and spade. Uh, it's basically just a, a pickaxe, a pickaxe and a shovel. And, uh, and that's all they are. But it was one of those words that I thought had probably, you know, gone out of use enough that I should probably give you a heads up. And then while I was looking for pictures of Mattock and Spade and Leader Wagon, I found a, a web page out there. Just a, It's a blog that's a Dracula project. And I haven't researched it in terrible depth, but they're doing really interesting stuff over there, if only with the maps. And there is a lovely map. I'm, I'm linking to the page, not, not to the map. If you, if you follow the link to the page, you will see a Google map that traces Jonathan's journey to get to Transylvania. And then, you know, we have the other map that I brought your attention to, uh, Siri James' Dracula My Love map, that will show you um, other travels that will happen in the book. Because it gets kind of complicated how they're getting from one place to another. Jonathan's lucky enough to have been able to come out on train for the most part to, um, to Hungary, Romania area, Transylvania. But... Um, but other modes of transportation will get used throughout the book. So that is kind of cool. All right, so for today, really, we're, we're picking up right where we left off with an update on Jonathan's situation, such as it is, trapped in the castle. And, uh, and, and in this, this week, Dracula starts to show a little bit more of his true colors than we've seen before. You know, I've talked about them kind of doing this uh, very mannered, dance uh, between Jonathan and, and the Count. And um, the dance starts to stumble a little in this chapter. But, uh, but Jonathan is wonderful. And of course, our reader, John, is also wonderful. And uh, I've linked again to his, his own personal website on, uh, on the show notes. And if you are so inclined, if you have a few moments, please go to his blog, his little website, and drop him a line and let him know that you are enjoying his reading. He's not been feeling well lately, and uh, I know it's it's been a real good uh, health boost for him to hear from Craftlet listeners and, uh, and, and people who've let him know that they thought he was doing a great job. And, uh, and that makes me happy too. This is going to be the last Jonathan Harker journal entry for a bit. We will switch narratives next week. And we are incredibly fortunate because just like when we listen to the Women in White, uh, we have quality readers for this. And, and Dracula, 
similar to A Woman in White, is an epistolary novel, meaning that the different chapters are written from the perspectives of different characters in the books. So sometimes, as you saw in Women in White, you have journal entries. Sometimes you have letters. Uh, because we're in the 1890s, we have telegrams as well. And you're going to get lots of these bits and pieces all written by the different voices. Now, you've already heard Jonathan Harker. We have... Uh, obviously women reading the women's parts, but we will also have some guest appearances from some other readers who are close to the Craftlet family as we continue on. And that is really exciting. And I think aside from those little bits and pieces, there's nothing new that I need to give you a heads up about. I think it's a tense chapter. It is a tense chapter. There is no escaping the fact that it is a tense chapter. So prepare yourself for chapter four of Dracula. Chapter four, Jonathan Harker's journal. I awoke in my own bed. If it be that I had not dreamt, the count must have carried me there. I tried to satisfy myself on the subject, but could not arrive at any unquestionable result. To be sure, there were certain small evidences, such as that my clothes were folded and laid by in a manner which was not my habit. My watch was still unwound, and I am rigorously accustomed to wind it the last thing before going to bed. Many such details, but these things are no proof, for they may have been evidences that my mind was not as usual, and, from some cause or another, I had certainly been much upset. I must watch for proof. Of one thing I am glad. If it was the Count that carried me here and undressed me, he must have been hurried in his task, for my pockets are intact. I am sure this diary would have been a mystery to him, which he would not have brooked, he would have taken or destroyed it. As I look round the room, although it has been to me so full of fear, it is now a sort of sanctuary, for nothing can be more dreadful than those awful women who were, who are, waiting to suck my blood. 18th of May I have been down to look at that room again in daylight, for I must know the truth. When I got to the doorway at the top of the stairs, I found it closed. It had been so forcefully driven against the jam that part of the woodwork was splintered, I could see that the bolt of the lock had not been shot, but the door is fastened from the inside. I fear it was no dream, and must act on this surmise. 19th of May I am surely in the toils. Last night the Count asked me in the suavest tones to write three letters, one saying that my work here was nearly done, and that I should start for home within a few days, another that I was starting on the next morning from the time of the letter, and the third that I had left the castle and arrived at B Streets. I would fain have rebelled, but felt that in the present state of things it would be madness to quarrel openly with the Count whilst I am so absolutely in his power, and to refuse would be to excite his suspicion and arouse his anger. He knows that I know too much, and that I must not live, lest I be dangerous to him. My only chance is to prolong my opportunities. Something may occur which will give me a chance to escape. I saw in his eyes something of that gathered wrath which was manifest when he hurled that fair woman from him. He explained to me that posts were few and uncertain, and that my writing now would ensure ease of mind to my friends, and he assured me with so much impressiveness that he would countermand the later letters, which would be held over at B Street until due time in case chance would admit of my prolonging my stay. That to oppose him would have been to create new suspicion. I therefore pretended to fall in with his views and asked him what dates I should put on the letters. He calculated a minute and then said, The first should be June 12th, the second June 19th, and the third June 29th. I now know the span of my life. God help me. 28th of May. There is a chance of escape, or at any rate being able to send word home. A band of Zagazni have come to the castle and are encamped in the courtyard. These Zagazni are gypsies. I have notes of them in my book. They are peculiar to this part of the world, though allied to the ordinary gypsies all the world over. There are thousands of them in Hungary and Transylvania who are almost outside all law. They attach themselves as a rule to some great noble or boyar and call themselves by his name. They are fearless and without religion save superstition, and they talk only their own varieties of the Romany tongue. I shall write some letters home and shall try to get them to have them posted. I have already spoken to them through my window to begin an acquaintanceship. 
They took their hats off and made obeisance and many signs, which, however, I could not understand any more than I could their spoken language. I have written their letters. Mina's is in shorthand, and I simply ask Mr. Hawkins to communicate with her. To her I have explained my situation, but without the horrors which I may only surmise. It would shock and frighten her to death were I to expose my heart to her. Should the letters not carry, then the Count shall not yet know my secret or the extent of my knowledge. I have given the letters. I threw them through the bars of my window with a gold piece and made what signs I could to have them posted. The man who took them pressed them to his heart and bowed and then put them in his cap. I could do no more. I stole back to the study and began to read. As the Count did not come in, I have written here. The Count has come. He sat down beside me and said in his smoothest voice as he opened two letters, The Zagazny has given me these, of which, though I know not whence they come, I shall of course take care. See? He must have looked at it. One is from you, and to my friend Peter Hawkins the other. Here he caught sight of the strange symbols as he opened the envelope, and the other dark look came into his face, and his eyes blazed wickedly. The other is a vile thing, an outrage upon friendship and hospitality. It is not signed. Well, so it cannot matter to us. And he calmly held the letter and envelope in the flame of the lamp till they were consumed. Then he went on. The letter to Hawkins. That I shall, of course, send on since it is yours. Your letters are sacred to me. Your pardon, my friend, that unknowingly I did break the seal. Will you not cover it again? He held out the letter to me and with a courteous bow handed me a clean envelope. I could only redirect it and hand it to him in silence. When he went out of the room I could hear the key softly turn. Minutes later I went over and tried it and the door was locked. When, an hour or two after, the Count came quietly into the room. His coming wakened me for I had gone to sleep on the sofa. He was very courteous and very cheery in his manner and seeing that I had been sleeping he said, So, my friend. You are tired. Get to bed. There is the surest rest. I may not have the pleasure to talk tonight since there are many labours to me, but you will sleep, I pray. I passed to my room and went to bed, and strange to say, slept without dreaming. Despair has its own calms. 31st of May This morning when I woke I thought I would provide myself with some paper and envelopes from my bag and keep them in my pocket so that I might write in case I should get an opportunity. But again a surprise, again a shock. Every scrap of paper was gone, and with it all my notes, my memoranda relating to railways and travel, my letter of credit, in fact all that might be useful to me were I once outside the castle. I sat and pondered a while, and then some thought occurred to me, and I made search of my portmanteau and in the wardrobe where I had placed my clothes. The suit in which I had travelled was gone, and also my overcoat and rug. I could find no trace of them anywhere. This looked like some new scheme of villainy. 17th of June This morning, as I was sitting on the edge of my bed cudgelling my brains, I heard without a cracking of whips and pounding and scraping of horses' feet up the rocky path beyond the courtyard. With joy I hurried to the window and saw drive into the yard two great litre wagons, each drawn by eight sturdy horses, and at the head of each pair a Slovak with his wide hat, great nail-studded belts, dirty sheepskin and high boots. They also had their long staves in hand. I ran to the door intending to descend and try and join them through the main hall, as I thought that way might be open for them. Again a shock, my door was fastened on the outside. Then I ran to the window and cried to them. They looked up at me stupidly and pointed, but just then the headman of the Skazny came out, and seeing them pointed to my window, said something at which they laughed. Henceforth no effort at mine, no piteous cry or agonised entreaty would make them even look at me. They resolutely turned away. The litre wagons contained great square boxes with handles of thick rope. These were evidently empty by the ease of which the Slovaks handled them, and by their resonance as they were roughly moved. When they were all unloaded and packed in a great heap in one corner of the yard, the Slovaks were given some money by the Zagazny, and, spitting on it for luck, lazily went each to his horse's head. Shortly afterwards I heard the cracking of their whips die away in the distance.
24th of June, before morning. Last night the Count left me early and locked himself into his own room. As soon as I dared, I ran up the winding stair and looked out of the window which opened south. I thought I would watch for the Count, for there is something going on. The Zagazni are quartered somewhere in the castle, and are doing work of some kind. I know it, for now and then I hear a faraway muffled sound as of mattock and spade, and whatever it is, it must be to the end of some ruthless villainy. I had been at the window somewhat less than half an hour when I saw something coming out of the Count's window. I drew back and watched carefully and saw the whole man emerge. It was a new shock to me to find that he had on the suit of clothes which I had worn whilst travelling here, and slung over his shoulder the terrible bag which I had seen the woman take away. There could be no doubt as to his quest, and in my garb too. This, then, is his new scheme of evil, that he will allow others to see me, as they think, so that he may both leave evidence that I have been seen in the towns or villages posted in my letters, and that any wickedness which he may do shall by the local people be attributed to me. It makes me rage to think that this can go on, and whilst I am shut up here, a veritable prisoner, but without that protection of the law, which is even a criminal's right and consolation. I thought I would watch for the Count's return, and for a long time sat doggedly at the window. Then I began to notice that there were some quaint little specks floating in the rays of the moonlight. They were like the tiniest grains of dust, and they whirled round and gathered in clusters in a nebulous sort of way. I watched them with a sense of soothing and a sort of calm stole over me. I leaned back in the embrasure in a more comfortable position so that I could enjoy more fully the aerial gambling. Something made me start up, a low, piteous howling of dogs somewhere far below in the valley, which was hidden from my sight. Louder it seemed to ring in my ears, and the floating motes of dust to take new shapes to the sound as they danced in the moonlight. I felt myself struggling to awake to some call of my instincts, Nay, my very soul was struggling, and my half-remembered sensibilities were striving to answer the call. I was becoming hypnotised. Quicker and quicker danced the dust, and the moonbeams seemed to quiver as they went by me into the mass of gloom beyond. More and more they gathered till they seemed to take dim, phantom shapes. And then I started, broad awake in the full possession of my senses, and ran screaming from the place. The phantom shapes which were becoming gradually materialised from the moonbeams were those of the three ghostly women to whom I was doomed. I fled, and felt somewhat safer in my own room where there was no moonlight and where the lamp was burning brightly. When a couple of hours had passed I heard something stirring in the Count's room, something like a sharp wail quickly suppressed, and then there was silence, deep, awful silence which chilled me. With a beating heart I tried the door, but I was locked in my prison and could do nothing. I sat down and simply cried. As I sat, I heard a sound in the courtyard without, the agonised cry of a woman. I rushed to the window and throwing it up peered out between the bars. There indeed was a woman with dishevelled hair, holding her hands over her heart as one distressed with running. She was leaning against a corner of the gateway. When she saw my face at the window, she threw herself forward and shouted in a voice laden with menace, Monster! Give me back my child! She threw herself onto her knees and, raising up her hands, cried the same words in tones which wrung my heart. Then she tore her hair and beat her breast and abandoned herself to all the violences of extravagant emotion. Finally she threw herself forward and, Though I could not see her, I could hear the beating of her naked hands against the door. Somewhere high overhead, probably on the tower, I heard the voice of the Count calling in his harsh, metallic whisper. His call seemed to be answered from far and wide by the howling of wolves. Before many minutes had passed, a pack of them poured, like a pent-up dam when liberated, through the wide entrance into the courtyard. There was no cry from the woman, and the howling of the wolves was but short. Before long they streamed away singly, licking their lips. I could not pity her, for I knew now what had become of her child, and she was better dead. What shall I do? What can I do? How can I escape from this dreadful thrall of night and gloom and fear? 25th of June, morning. 
No man knows till he has suffered from the night how sweet and how dear to his heart and eye the morning can be. When the sun grew so high this morning that it struck the top of the great gateway opposite my window, the high spot which it touched seemed to me as if the dove from the ark had lighted there. My fear fell from me as if it had been a vaporous garment which had dissolved in the warmth. I must take action of some sort while the courage of the day is upon me. Last night one of my post-dated letters went to post, and the first of the fatal series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from the earth. Let me not think of it. Action! It has always been at night time that I have been molested or threatened or in some way in danger or in fear. I have not yet seen the Count in the daylight. Can it be that he sleeps when others wake, that he may be awake whilst they sleep? If I could only get into his room, but there is no possible way. The door is always locked. No way for me. Yet there is a way, if one dares to take it. Where his body has gone, why may not another body go? I have seen him myself crawl from his window. Why should not I imitate him, and then go in by his window? The chances are desperate, but my need is more desperate still. I shall risk it. At the worst it can only be death, and a man's death is not a calves, and the dread hereafter may still be open to me. God help me in my task. Goodbye, Mina, if I fail, and goodbye, my faithful friend and second father. Goodbye, all, and last of all, Mina. Same day, later. I have made the effort, and, God helping me, have come safely back to this room. I must put down every detail in order. I went whilst my courage was fresh straight to the window on the south side, and at once got outside on the narrow ledge of stone which runs round the building on this side. The stones were big and roughly cut, and the mortar had by process of time been washed away between them. I took off my boots and ventured out on the desperate way. I looked down once so as to make sure that a sudden glimpse of the awful death would not overcome me, but after that kept my eyes away from it. I knew pretty well the direction and distance of the Count's window, and made for it as well as I could, having regard to the opportunities available. I did not feel dizzy. I suppose I was too excited, and the time seemed ridiculously short till I found myself standing on the windowsill and trying to raise up the sash. I was filled with agitation, however, when I bent down and slid feet foremost in through the window. Then I looked around for the Count, but, with surprise and gladness, made a discovery. The room was empty. It was barely furnished with odd things which seemed to have never been used. The furniture was something the same style as that in the south rooms, and was covered with dust. I looked for the key, but it was not in the lock, and I could not find it anywhere. The only thing I found was a great heap of gold in one corner, gold of all kinds, Roman and British and Austrian, and Hungarian and Greek and Turkish money, covered with a film of dust as though it had lain long in the ground. None of it that I noticed was less than three hundred years old. There were also chains and ornaments, some jewelled, but all of them old and stained. At one corner of the room was a heavy door. I tried it, for, since I could not find the key of the room or the key for the outer door, which was the main effort of my search, I must make further examination, or all of my efforts would be in vain. It was open and led through a stone passage to a circular stairway which went steeply down. I descended, minding carefully where I went, for the stairs were dark, being only lit by loopholes in the heavy masonry. At the bottom there was a dark, tunnel-like passage, through which came a deathly, sickly odour, the odour of old earth newly turned. As I went through the passage, the smell grew closer and heavier. At last I pulled open a heavy door which stood ajar, and found myself in an old, ruined chapel which had evidently been used as a graveyard. The roof was broken, and in two places were steps leading to vaults, but the ground had recently been dug over, and the earth placed in great wooden boxes manifestly those which had been brought by the Slovaks. There was nobody about, and I made search for any further outlet, but there was none. Then I went over every inch of the ground so as not to lose a chance. I went down even into the vaults where the dim light struggled, although to do so was a dread to my very soul. Into two of these I went, but saw nothing except fragments of old coffins and piles of dirt. In the third, however, I made a discovery. There, in one of the boxes, of which there were fifty in all, on a pile of newly dug earth, lay the Count. 
He was either dead or asleep, I could not say which, for the eyes were open and stony, but without the glassiness of death, and the cheeks had the warmth of life through all their pallor, and the lips were red as ever. But there was no sign of movement, no pulse, no breath, no beating of the heart. I bent over him and tried to find any sign of life, but in vain. He could not have lain there long, for the earthy smell would have passed away in a few hours. By the side of the box was its cover, pierced with holes here and there. I thought he might have the keys on him, but when I went to search I saw the dead eyes, and in them, dead though they were, such a look of hate, though unconscious of me or my presence, that I fled from the place and, leaving the count's room by the window, crawled again up the castle wall. Regaining my own chamber, I threw myself pounding upon the bed and tried to think. 29th of June Today is the date of my last letter, and the Count has taken steps to prove it was genuine. For again I saw him leave the castle by the same window, and in my clothes. As he went down the wall, lizard fashion, I wished I had a gun or some lethal weapon that I might destroy him. But I fear that no weapon wrought alone by man's hand would have any effect on him. I dared not wait to see him return, for I feared to see those weird sisters. I came back to the library and read there till I fell asleep. I was awakened by the Count, who looked at me as grimly as a man can look as he said, Tomorrow, my friend, we must part. You return to your beautiful England, I to some work which may have such an end that we may never meet. Your letter home has been dispatched. Tomorrow I shall not be here, but all shall be ready for your journey. In the morning come the Zagazny, who have some labours of their own here, and also come some Slovaks. When they have gone, my carriage shall come for you, and shall bear you to the Borgo Pass to meet the diligence from Bukovina to Bistritz. But I am in hopes that I shall see more of you at Castle Dracula. I suspected him, and determined to test his sincerity. Sincerity? It seems like a profanation of the word to write it in connection with such a monster, so I asked him point-blank, Why may I not go tonight? Because, dear sir, my coachman and horses are away on a mission. But I would walk with pleasure. I want to get away at once. He smiled. Such a soft, smooth, diabolical smile that I knew that there was some trick behind his smoothness. He said, And your baggage? I do not care about it. I can send for it some other time. The Count stood up and said with a sweet curtsy which made me rub my eyes. It seemed so real. You English have a saying which is close to my heart, for its spirit is that which rules our boyars. Welcome the coming, speed the parting guest. Come with me, my dear young friend. Not an hour shall you wait in my house against your will, though sad I am at your going, and that you so suddenly desire it. Come. With a stately gravity, he, with the lamb, preceded me down the stairs and along the hall. Suddenly he stopped. Hark! Close at hand came the howling of many wolves. It was almost as if the sound sprang up at the rising of his hand, just as the music of a great orchestra seems to leap under the baton of a conductor. After a pause of a moment, he proceeded in a stately way to the door, drew back the ponderous bolts, unhugged the heavy chains and began to draw it open. To my intense astonishment, I saw that it was unlocked. Suspiciously I looked around but could see no key of any kind. As the door began to open, the howling of the wolves without grew louder and angrier. Their red with champing teeth and their blunt clawed feet as they leaped came in through the opening door. I knew that to struggle at the moment against the Count was useless. With such allies as these at his command I could do nothing. But still the door continued slowly to open, and only the Count's body stood in the gap. Suddenly it struck me that this might be the moment and the means of my doom. I was to be given to the wolves and at my own instigation. There was a diabolical wickedness in the area great enough for the count, and as a last chance I cried out, Shut the door! I shall wait until morning! and covered my face with my hands to hide my tears of bitter disappointment. With one sweep of his powerful arm, the count threw the door shut and the great bolts clanged and echoed through the hall as they shot back into their places. In silence we returned to the library, and after a minute or two I went to my own room. The last I saw of Count Dracula was his kissing his hand to me with a red light of triumph in his eyes. 
and with a smile that Judas in hell might be proud of. When I was in my room and about to lie down, I thought I heard a whispering at my door. I went to it softly and listened. Unless my ears deceived me, I heard the voice of the Count. Back, back to your own place. Your time has not yet come. Wait, have patience. Tomorrow night, tomorrow night is yours. There was a low, sweet ripple of laughter, and in a rage I threw open the door and saw without the three terrible women licking their lips. As I appeared, they all joined in a horrible laugh and ran away. I came back to my room and threw myself on my knees. It is then so near the end? Tomorrow, tomorrow, Lord help me and those to whom I am dear. 30th of June, morning. These may be the last words I ever write in this diary. I slept till just before the dawn, and when I woke threw myself on my knees, for I determined that if death came he should find me ready. At last I felt that subtle change in the air and knew that the morning had come. Then came the welcome cockcrow, and I felt that I was safe. With a glad heart I opened my door and ran down to the hall. I had seen that the door was unlocked and now escape was before me. With hands that trembled with eagerness I unhooked the chains and drew back the massive bolts. But the door would not move. Despair seized me. I pulled and pulled at the door and shook it till, massive as it was, it rattled in its casement. I could see the bolt shot. It had been locked after I left the count. Then a wild desire came to me to obtain that key at any risk, and I determined then and there to scale that wall again and gain the count's room. He might kill me, but death now seemed the happier choice of evils. Without a pause, I rushed up to the east window and scrambled down the wall, as before, into the Count's room. It was empty, but that was as I expected. I could not see a key anywhere, but the heap of gold remained. I went through the door in the corner and down the winding stair and along the dark passage to the old chapel. I knew now well enough where to find the monster I sought. The great box was in the same place, close against the wall, but the lid was laid on it not fastened down, but with the nails ready in their places to be hammered home. I knew I must search the body for the key, so I raised the lid and laid it back against the wall, and then I saw something which filled my very soul with horror. There lay the Count, but looking as if his youth had been half renewed, for the white hair and moustache were changed to a dark iron grey, the cheeks were fuller and the white skin seemed ruby red underneath. The mouth was redder than ever, for on the lips were gouts of fresh blood, which trickled from the corners of the mouth and ran over the chin and neck. Even the deep burning eyes seemed set among swollen flesh, for the lids and pouches underneath were bloated. It seemed as if the whole awful creature were simply gorged with blood. He lay like a filthy leech, exhausted with his repletion. I shuddered as I bent over to touch him, and every sense in me revolted at the contact, but I had to search or I was lost. The coming night may see my own body a banquet in a similar way to those horrid three. I felt all over the body, but no sign could I find of the key. Then I stopped and looked at the Count. There was a mocking smile on the bloated face which seemed to drive me mad. This was the being I was helping to transfer to London, where, perhaps for centuries to come, he might, amongst its teeming millions, satiate his lust for blood and create a new and ever-widening circle of semi-demons to batten on the helpless. The very thought drove me mad. A terrible desire came upon me to rid the world of such a monster. There was no lethal weapon at hand, but I seized a shovel which the workman had been using to fill the cases, and lifting it high, struck with the edge downwards at the hateful face. But as I did so, the head turned, and the eyes fell full upon me with all their blaze of basilisk horror. The sight seemed to paralyse me, and the shovel turned in my hand and glanced from the face, merely making a deep gash above the forehead. The shovel fell from my hand across the box, and as I pulled it away, the flange of the blade caught the edge of the lid, which fell over again and hid the horrible thing from my sight. The last glimpse I had was of the bloated face, blood-stained and filled with a grin of malice, which would have held its own in the nethermost hell.
I thought and thought what should be my next move, but my brain seemed on fire, and I waited with despairing feeling growing over me. As I waited I heard in the distance a gypsy song sung by merry voices coming closer, and through their songs the rolling of heavy wheels and the cracking of whips. The Zagazny and the Slovaks from whom the counts had spoken were coming. With the last look around and at the box which contained the vile body, I ran from the place and gained the count's room, determined to rush out at the moment the door should be opened. With strained ears I listened and heard downstairs the grinding of the key in the great lock and the falling back of the heavy door. There must have been some other means of entry, or someone had a key for one of the locked doors. Then there came the sound of many feet tramping and dying away in some passage which sent up a clanging echo. I turned to run down again towards the vault where I might find the new entrance, but at that moment there seemed to come a violent puff of wind, and the door to the winding stair blew to with a shock that sent the dust from the lintels flying. When I ran to push it open I found that it was hopelessly fast. I was again a prisoner, and the net of doom was closing round me more closely. As I write, there is, in the passage below, a sound of many trampling feet and the crash of weights being set down heavily, doubtless the boxes with their freight of earth. There is a sound of hammering, it is the box being nailed down. Now I can hear the heavy feet trampling again along the hall, with many other idle feet coming behind them. The door is shut and the chains rattle. There is a grinding of the key in the lock. I can hear the key withdrawn. Then another door opens and shuts. I hear the creaking of lock and bolt. Hark! In the courtyard and down the rocky way, the roll of heavy wheels, the crack of whips and the chorus of the Zagazni as they pass into the distance. I am alone in the castle with those awful women. Fuh! Mina is a woman, and there is naught in common. They are the devils of the pit. I shall not remain alone with them. I shall try and scale the castle wall farther than I have yet attempted. I shall take some of the gold with me, lest I want it later. I may find a way from this dreadful place. And then away for home. Away to the quickest and nearest train. Away from this cursed spot, from this cursed land, where the devil and his children still walk with earthly feet. At least God's mercy is better than that of these monsters, and the precipice is steep and high. At its foot a man may sleep, as a man. Goodbye, all. Mina. End of chapter four. Poor Jonathan Harker. It's so horrible. And part of the horror is that he doesn't know what he can or should do. You know, a little knowledge could have really helped this man out, but of course, he doesn't live in a world of superstition. He lives in a world of modern marvel and technology. Kind of like our narrator for this week. Jonathan Harker was read by John Scholes. John Scholes is a freelance actor, writer, director, and the master of anything involving games. To pitch your meager intelligence against his outrageous ego, please feel free to contact him by the website www.vagnet.com. Thank you. His stings always make me think of the end of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio episodes. They always had something, often about a small furry creature from Alpha Centauri. So, a couple of things that I wanted to uh, remember to tell you or remind you of. One I didn't mention before, Shakespeare Retold. Lots of you emailed and told me to watch Taming of the Shrew. And you were so right. I had to wait for the Netflix thing to come because it is not streamable. Shakespeare Retold, Taming of the Shrew, is stunning. Moaning Myrtle, the lady who plays Moaning Myrtle, uh, she is Kate and she is genius. And if you are a Warehouse 13 fan, you will see that Bianca is played by the woman who plays HD. H.G. And their mother is played by Twiggy. So it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. But mostly, it's about Rufus Sewell and how much I am in love with him. Oh my gosh. I have, I have been watching him since he was Fortinbras in Hamlet. 
Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. And uh, this guy, I would watch him read a phone book. And he makes a wonderful Petruchio. And, and the way that they figured out how to update that play, it's a, it's a wonder. Uh, the, I didn't watch the other Shakespeare retold on that disc, which was Midsummer. Uh, I watched The Puck. He was okay. Eh. And then I shut it off because I, I haven't read that play. I'm waiting for a brilliant production. And then I'm going to go see it the way God intended. Uh, the other disc, however, of Shakespeare Retold has Macbeth, which we're doing over on uh, Chop Bard Podcast with Aaron Ziegler, our Dracula artist of the day. And that was really interestingly done. It is uh, starring James McAvoy, who is just a very handsome young man who gets very, very scary when he is, you know, Macbething. I found. I found him to be really quite unnerving. Uh, but, but very, very good. Um, you know, it's not a flawless Macbeth, but I thought one of the things that they did really well was that you like Lady Macbeth, which makes it that much more horrible. You know, she doesn't come on all dark and dripping venom. She is a much more complicated person, and, uh, and I am very grateful for that. I thought, I thought that worked particularly well. You know, it's, it may be a play about ambition, but they're not ruthless, crazy evil people. They just do some really stupid stuff that's really, really bad. Um, and then they're stuck. And, you know, how do you take it back when it's murder? It's kind of tricky. So I thought that Macbeth was, was quite good. And then they also had a, an updated Much Ado, which I love. And I think the Brana version is just about the best thing you're going to see for Shakespeare on, on uh, film. That and, and Branagh's Henry V were genius. But this, this Much Ado is really quite good. Uh, I think it's better when you know the original. I think the Macbeth you could watch on its own and not need to know a whole lot. But the, the Much Ado, you kind of need to know what they're doing. So Shakespeare Retold, Netflix, not streamable, but uh, DVDable and really quite worth your time, especially The Taming of the Shrew. Uh, there are blog buttons on the show notes if you would like to put an I'm listening to Dracula note on your blog or website. Also, there are knit-along buttons. It is not too late to join in the knit-alongs. We are flexible, happy people, and not ruthless at all. Not, not Macbeth-like in the least. So if you are interested in doing a knit-along I can tell you here in front of God and everyone that if I had started my lace knitting with Chrissy Gardner's Wilhelmina Shawlette, accompanied by attention from Ms. Gardner, I would have been more willing and happier about embracing lace earlier on in my knitting career. I would have had much more confidence because this is a wonderfully straightforward pattern. And Chrissy is always willing to help and uh and and give you a, a leg up if you if you get confused it's um it's also a very pretty pattern so you know in that respect it's it's also not bad to start there so that's one thing and then meg is doing the van tassel mittens tis the season you know to start knitting mittens so you can have them done when it actually gets really cold right now it is only mostly cold here and raining it's like 60 which is not really cold at all chilly perhaps sure but not really cold andrew's book the cool for cats mystery will have its kindle version available to you for i think like 4.99 uh by the time this episode posts so you can go and get the rather inexpensive kindle version of andrew's murder mystery very soon in fact immediately upon listening to this and if you are so inclined we would love it if you would go to Amazon and leave a review. It can just be a sentence and, you know, however many stars you want to give it. Anything is good. And that goes for Defarge as well. Also, don't forget to check out the Vampire, Werewolf, and Zombie book by Margaret. That is very exciting. There are links to that in the show notes as well. Also links to our incentive for the month of October the ever so gorgeous vintage tea times creations tea stand by marcelli 
our listener. And uh, and if you're in Rhinebeck, please come find me. I will be at the Cooperative Press booth most of the time, Building C, Stall 37, and I'm part of the Rhinebeck Bingo fun. If you are at Rhinebeck and you buy a copy of What Would Madame Defarge Knit or you bring your copy for me to sign, I will hand over your very own WWMDFK bracelet that you can then show off to everyone and have them ask, well, Valley, what would Madame Defarge knit? Cheeky Redhead's Creepy Playlist, I am continuing to post because people are adding to that in the show notes and via email, so please take a look and, uh, and start compiling your playlist for this Halloween season. I hope you are well. I hope you continue to be well. I hope I see you in Rhinebeck, and I hope you have a great week. I will talk to you next week post-Rhinebeck, and until then, have a great one. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craft Lit. Visit Knit Circus online magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. And What Would Madame Defarge Knit? A new book of knit and crochet patterns coming to you from the Craftlet family. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlet supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlet.com. Craftlet can also be accessed by its own Android and iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.